Good morning, I'm Steve Coleman, one of the teachers here at New Hope Chapel, and uh, I'm glad to be here, so glad to be able to see everybody again, the ones I can recognize. Some are much taller than they were, glad to see that too, and glad to see everybody here. Just before I get started, I wanted to uh, just say a couple of thank yous. You know, for the last year, there have been uh, over a dozen people that have worked to sort of make those virtual online services happen. And uh, I, th- I think they deserve some thanks. Um, and uh, I, if you're one of those dozen people or so, if you just raise your hand. I know nobody's looking for, oh, come on. There's, some of you are in this room. There you go. Yeah, worship team, thank you. Thank you. Andrea is one of them, too, helping. And I know as a, as a speaker, you know, we went from preparing a message and then speaking to writing a message, producing a video, editing a video, you know, all that kind of stuff to make this what I always called a movie. And uh, so the, I know the teaching team's breathing a sigh of relief if they don't have to create movies anymore. Uh, also, people who worked on the building uh, the last couple of days. More than a half a dozen of those. Why don't you raise your hand, please? Hello, Uncle Bill. How you go? Great. Thank you so much. And then finally, just thank you all for braving this new world to kind of come out here, out of the dark, out of our homes. And, uh, and for those of you that are joining us virtually, it's just so exciting to... to uh, uh, it, was, it was good sitting at home knowing that we were worshiping with others, but it's, it's just great to be talking right into a camera here, knowing I'm talking to people there and, and also talking to people here. So thank you very much. We are the body of Christ. We are interdependent and we need each other. So just so glad, uh, grateful for the, God's grace that we can meet today. Well, last week, uh, Joanne talked about the first part of chapter 4, John's conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria. Uh, I, if you had a chance to hear that, it, it, it was a super message. Uh, glad I don't have to go back and summarize it. She did a good enough job. We're just going to let it lay. But she did a fantastic job with it. And um, this week, we're going to do the second half of chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 4. While you're doing that, let me show you some signs. Depending on what you need at the moment, you might have noticed some of them as you walked around or traveled by car. I have some signs and symbols here, and I want to know what is that sign for. This is audience participation, particularly you children. Uh, So just shout it out. Yeah, McDonald's, good. Yep, I know. Bad choice, because that's all you're going to think about for the next 30 minutes till we get out. But have you ever had one of those plane flights that was three, four, five hours long, and you disembark, and of course you want to get your baggage, but you're looking up near the ceiling because there's one thing on your mind, and that's the signs that are going to direct you to the restrooms. Okay, or driving along, and you see this one, an H. You, anybody know what that is? You children in hospital. I wonder how many lives have been impacted by these 
and almost seems like randomly placed along the road, these directions to hospitals. And then uh, finally, this one, fire extinguisher. Now, wouldn't it be silly if there was a fire and I ran up to you and I was holding this metal sign, here's the fire extinguisher, that would not be helpful, would it? No, you need the real thing. You need the fire extinguisher. That's because the sign is nothing by itself. It only has value because it's pointing to something. It's not the thing needed at the moment. It's just pointing to the thing. You really want the thing. Well, the, go- the Gospel of John records seven miracles that John calls signs, and they all work the same way. They're meant to point the way to something, and they're meant to point the way to Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world. We've seen that in a couple of the passages that have come so far. You're going to be seeing it in many of the others that come after this. So this morning, we're going to read about a father who became the central character in John's second sign or second miracle. We're beginning by linking to the aftermath of the prior conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria that resulted in her bringing many people to Jesus. So I'm reading starting in verse 39 of John 4. And many of the Samaritans that day believed in him because of the word the woman, of the woman who testified, he told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now this is the immediate context for our narrative. The incident that occurred in Galilee. And I want you to notice the words that are in a different color on the screen. The Samaritans were really locked in here. They stated they had heard Jesus' words and they believed in him. This text is setting us up for the next situation Jesus encounters. It begins like this. Now, after the two days in Samaria, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made water, wine. That was the first sign miracle that John identified in his book here. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. What? There's a couple of odd, a number of odd things in this passage, and we'll try to straighten them out a little bit. What is this statement at the beginning that a prophet is not honored in the place he grew up? Why is that there? You'll find this or a similar statement, similar saying, in all four of the Gospels. But in the context of those other three accounts, 
It's when people are offended at Jesus. And so he says this. Prophet has honor, but he doesn't have honor in his own country. That's the only place. Let me give you an example. In Mark, he comes to his hometown and teaches in the synagogue. The people were astonished at the authoritative teaching. And they sitting there in the audience saying, isn't this Mary's boy, the carpenter? We know his brothers and sisters. Who is he to teach us like this? They wouldn't accept what he said and rejected him, not believing he was from God. Jesus responded to this saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. But the placement of the statement here in John makes it different because we read right in the next sentence that the Galileans were receiving Jesus. They'd been in Jerusalem during the feast. They'd seen the things he did and the stir that he caused. However, the implication that John is making is that Jesus was being received by the Galileans only because of the amazing things he did in Jerusalem rather than for who he was. Their kind of receiving or following was not the same as believing in Jesus, the Son of God, who is being presented in this book. We know this because Jesus says out loud in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, the text says, he says this right after the man is pleading with him about his son. But the you there, uh, you will never believe, is plural. It's second person plural. We don't have a different word for that in English. We say you for a singular individual we're talking about or you for a group. In the South, different language, they have the word y'all. In this particular translation, we... um, It says, unless you people see signs, which communicates that. But it's right in the middle of this poor father um, pleading for his son. The father has shown up. He was, um, this particular father, he's called a nobleman in some translations. I think others call it royal official. And that's a little better translation, royal official. Because um, the word used means somebody who is connected with royalty, and it includes people that serve in the court of a king or a monarch. There was no king there. There was a tetrarch, and it was Herod Antipas, Antipas, excuse me. And that's not Herod the Great, who met with the wise men and was trying to kill all the Jewish boys. This is his son, and he was actually the tetrarch of Galilee and Persia, Persia, and um, at the time. So the nobleman could have been part of Herod's court. We just don't know that for sure, and we know almost nothing else about him. He's only called the nobleman. But he's a father. And this father was living a tragedy in progress. His son lay sick and close to death in Capernaum. Presumably, he had tried every other way to get his son cured. But desperate, this father had traveled the approximately 20 miles in order to find Jesus at Cana and plead with him to come back to Capernaum to heal his son. This father's in process of doing everything he can to save his son. But Jesus does a curious thing. 
He takes that moment to kind of address the crowd with this, unless you people see signs and wonders. But you know, that father was undaunted. You wouldn't expect anything less from a man who was pleading for his very son's life. So the text goes on, as if Jesus' response had never been there. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now that word is different than the word son before, and they've translated with the word child. I mean, really the sense of it is, come down before my little boy dies. That familiar uh, idea. This was an emergency. However, what was an emergency for this man was for Jesus an opportunity. It was an emergency for this man because he was desperate because of two assumptions that he had. One was that Jesus needed to be present to heal. And the second one is that death was final and Jesus couldn't raise the dead. Those are natural assumptions we often have. We're rooted to this earth. But when you're talking about the spiritual plane, when you're talking about God himself, those don't create an urgency anymore. And so what, what was an emergency for the man was God's opportunity. Jesus, of course, wasn't bound to these false ideas, and so he took this opportunity to draw out the man's faith. Jesus offered this man the opportunity to believe and told him to go. Jesus had begged, the man had begged Jesus to come, but Jesus told him to go. What an unexpected answer. Kind of a no, but he did leave the man one thing. And that was a promise. You know, it sort of reminds us of the story of Naaman, the Syrian commander who came to Elijah back in the Old Testament. He had leprosy and wanted to be cured by this prophet Elijah. And Elijah's word was, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And I won't get into the details of the story, but the point is, the man went and did that, and that's when he was cured of leprosy. The same kind of thing's happening here. The man is asked to step out uh, with a promise that his son would live. Your son lives. We read, the man believed the word Jesus said to him, and as the narrative says, he went his way. Well, that's just as amazing as everything else before. I wonder what he thought about along that road, the 20 miles back, whether he was on an animal or walking, hours of travel. What do you think he thought about? Well, then we read, things get kind of happier now. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did 
when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Well, he met those servants and found out the sun got better the same time. And it says he believed and his whole household. What did they believe? Did they now believe the son was going to live? No. They all knew, except for the man who was traveling, they all found out yesterday this son's going to make it because his fever went away. So that's not what they believed. The nobleman believed Jesus has healed his son when Jesus said the son would live. But the object of his faith is different now. So when it says the man believed, I think there was gratitude that his son had returned from the brink of death. And I think as he reflected on it, the day after he believed Jesus, he came to the conclusion this was from, this man was from God. He was the Messiah. And he believed in Jesus and so did his household. He, like the Sumerians, heard Jesus' words, believed them, and came to believe in Jesus ultimately. Big contrast between the Samaritans and this nobleman and then the Galileans that John introduced us to. The Galileans who Jesus said, unless you see signs, you'll never believe. The thing about signs and miracles is they're pretty exciting. Sometimes there's a benefit that comes to the people that are there. We'll hear about that with feeding of the 5,000 when Julie does that. And they're like, wow, maybe we should follow this guy around all the time. And that's the opposite of what God wants. That's putting value in the sign. That's saying, I don't care about anything but this sign. I want the sign. And God's saying, no, no, don't get distracted here. The sign is, has one job, and that's the point to my son. So taking a step back uh, to look at this account in the context of the whole gospel, we notice that John's desire was to clearly present Jesus as God in the flesh and lead people to life. You'll see that as a theme throughout this series. Simple belief in Jesus and the promise of eternal life. Near the end of the book, John gives us his purpose for writing. And some of these words are going to sound familiar. Truly, Jesus did many other signs, here miracles with that, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John records seven. The other Gospels average about 20. But John's saying there are a lot of other things that were written. But these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The story of the nobleman is straightforward. He heard about Jesus. He went to find him. He believed what he said and ultimately believed in Jesus the Christ the Messiah sent from God. He wasn't interested in what other miracles Jesus had done or would do. He was not like the Galileans in that way, who were all excited about the things Jesus was doing and excited about those, those miracles. 
So, in applying this to our lives, there is, this story really hits directly on John's purpose to communicate the, who Jesus is and what the expectation is. What's the nature of faith? What is God looking for from humankind? And that is belief in Him as the Savior of the world. So if you've never had an opportunity to think about being in relationship with God, God's always felt like there, but not quite here. Uh, this is the message here for it. And we read in the book of John as well, in chapter 3, we've already passed it, but the verse that says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Simple message, straightforward. It was the experience of the nobleman. Now, for those of us that do have a relationship with Jesus, we've, we've uh, you know, sort of taken, we're on that road home with that promise that we're holding on to that uh, eternal life is ours because of our belief in Jesus. What does this story have for us? I don't know about you, but I was really struck. I feel like I've had a lot of nobleman moments that I've come to the Lord and said, this, this whole thing's falling apart. I'm struggling here. This is a disaster. And, um, and I, I, I'm suffering here. Please solve this. Please do that. Please bring this to resolution. And I don't always get that answer I frequently don't get the answer that I'm looking for exactly. And I feel like, particularly looking back on it now, that a lot of those were nobleman moments, that Jesus had a promise that I could recognize in Scripture, that all things were working together for good to someone like me that was trying to honor God, or that uh, if we cast our cares on Him, He cares for us, and that by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we let our requests made, be made known to God, and the peace of God that transcends understanding will be ours. Those kinds of promises, and, and the Bible's full of them, but I feel like those promises were there for me, and what I needed to do was count on the promise and start the trip home. I've been on my way home for most of my life. <laughs> And I think we all are. It's a shared journey. It's a tough journey. But uh, it's useful to remember that when it's our emergency, God often looks at that as an opportunity because it's not an emergency to Him. And He has the uh, advantage of being able to use that situation to do something even greater in our lives than we could imagine. We're looking for that quick resolution He's looking for the saving resolution to the problem.